Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And today, Cherry, we are revisiting some of our favorite interviews from 2023. What a year. Later this hour, we're going to hear from renowned climate scientist Michael Mann, who joined us to talk about surviving the climate crisis, Mm. which he says is possible in his book, Our Fragile Moment. Also, for your listening pleasure, we'll hear from the young, uber-talented flutist, Julian Chung from the Curtis Institute. He's just 16 years old, and he stopped by Studio 2 this year to share his love of music and to play some tunes. But Avi, right now, a segment for all the curd nerds out there. I just love it. Curd nerds. Shout out, curd nerds. <laughs> Tania Darlington, a.k.a. Madame Fromage, is a cheese aficionado and a self-described stinky cheese advocate. Her book... Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese contains just about everything you would want to know about cheese. And we even got to try some Mm, and ask mm. her about her absolute obsession with the stuff. My mother is from Switzerland. And when I was growing up, she made a cheese board every Sunday for lunch. Wow. And it was a time when my brother and I got to sit and eat these beautiful mountain cheeses. We could drink just like a thimble full of red wine with our parents and have baguette and dark chocolate. And sometimes we would have friends over. um, And it was just such a social time. And it felt so special. So in my life, I've just always made cheese boards the things that I've invited people over for or the thing that I always take to a party. But wasn't there like a transformational experience oh, yes. you had in Philadelphia yes. that like it was like the, the angels came down from the heavens type <laughs> the of thing? Cheese. Yeah. What was what True happened? Cheese there? Angels. Yeah. I moved here in 2005. I didn't know a single person. I moved here from the state of Wisconsin, a big dairy state. And I stumbled into De Bruno Brothers in the Italian market yes. looking for a very unusual Wisconsin cheese. And the mongers behind the counter were just like, who are you? How do you know that cheese? If you like that cheese, we've got about 20 other interesting things for you to try. And I had my first bite of real French Roquefort, and it changed my life. It so, was that good. It was that good. I'd never had anything other than a Roquefort crumble. And being <laughs> handed this like beautiful piece of spicy blue cheese at like 10 in the morning uh, by like a guy covered in tattoos. It was like just so memorable. And I thought, I'm going to eat every cheese in this <laughs> shop. And, uh, and I started a blog called Madame Fromage. And I chronicled eating all 350 cheeses in the store. And That's then awesome. I wrote a book with them about it. And by the way, your Instagram page is delightful and amazing. And your um, obsession and love for cheese is very infectious. So I want (gasps) to ask you some cheese basics because I'm the person who's at the cheese board just slicing and eating and slicing and eating, having Mm -hmm. no idea what I'm eating or slicing. So if you could just tell us basics, how how does cheese get its flavor? Like, Mm. because it's so delicious. Well, The best cheese really comes from grass-fed animals. And so the Mm. flavor is really coming from well-cared-for soil, uh, delicious grasses, a mix of um, when there's herbs, wildflowers, things like that in the feed, those flavors come through the milk. So that's why some of your best cheeses come from these mountain meadows uh, of the Alps or the Great Pyrenees because... The meadows hold just the most beautiful kind of landscape, and also it just transfers right into the milk, which imbues itself into the cheese. Also, there's things like cave aging and rubbing the cheeses on their surfaces, sometimes giving them a little sponge bath with wine or beer. Those add flavor, too. So if what the animal eats is a big factor, what are the other biggest factors in, like, how the cheese 
kind of like constitutes, right? Because you have the harder, mm-hmm. the softer, the yeah. rind. The, you know, it's like what are the factors that control all of that? I'd say the longer a cheese is aged, typically the more flavor it has. Okay. And in the cheese world, you talk about the journey. It's sort of like uh, the flavor path that you taste. That's like an official term, it by the way. It is the, the journey. Che- the which cheese journey. I love, it's, right? Mm. It's like you're noting what is my initial taste when I put it on my tongue. Then as it begins to soften, does the taste change? Then once I swallow, what do I notice about the aftertaste? Does it linger like a bold cheddar? It could like linger for a minute. Or is it like fresh and clean and like it just goes away softly? So there's so much that goes into cheese from aging, from the maker's touch, like the lightness of someone's hands, scooping up brie curds. That can change the way it tastes. can change the way it tastes. Wow. There's so much chemistry. But then I also just say like artistry and intuition. Hmm. And so you have a very mature cheese palate. But for a lot of people, they start with the singles. For the people out there who thought you were eating real cheese, that's not real cheese. You know, what's the difference? Tell us the difference. Yeah, I mean, you've got industrial cheeses that could be made with quality milk or it could be made with milk powders and oils. Um, But I really love like the artisan cheese where someone is taking care of their animals, milking them, and then going like direct. Sometimes that milk goes in directly into the vat and they're producing cheese immediately. That the freshest milk going into the vat makes usually the best cheeses. And so what should you be looking for if you say, you know what, I want to put something together. I want to seem somewhat sophisticated, mm-hmm. but not overwhelm my guest. What should you be looking for if you oh, go into the cheese section? Oh, there's a couple of keywords. couple of keywords. Are okay. you ready for it? Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. One is the word farmstead. It means that the cheese is made on the farm where the animals were raised. That's so a good thing. That's okay, farm. I'm writing yeah, that down. It's great because it means mm-hmm. that probably the maker is taking care of the animals, taking care of the pastures, so it's a closed circle. I love raw milk cheeses. Okay, that means milk is not pasteurized, but it's probably been cared for very lovingly with a lot of uh, But some people attention. are scared of that. Some are. I tend to think that's how cheese is made traditionally, so that's why I'm always seeking out raw milk cheeses. You're giving us the courage to yeah, eat yeah, raw yeah. milk Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, if you eat yeah. Comte, the most popular French che- table cheese, it is required by law to be raw milk. So there's that. And the last thing I would say would be PDO, Protected mm-hmm. Designation of Origin. That's for mostly cheeses from Europe. That means that it's highly regulated. The recipe is being attended to, and you you're getting something that really comes from a place. Hmm. So this would be like Brie de Meaux, which can only Brie, which can only be made in the village of Meaux, the town of Meaux. And so it's something that's been created there for decades, for centuries, really. A little bit like champagne can only be made in the Champagne region. PDO cheeses are, are, are uh, location-specific. Give me a copy of those notes after I will. Oh, um, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to bring in a question here from Brad, who lives in Wynwood. And I'm going to use it as a springboard to to start eating some of this cheese. Let's go, Brad. Brad wants to know whether to slice your cheese thin or thick. And I've got, what is the cheese I'm holding up right here? You're holding up Merry Goat Round. Merry Goat Round. Goat milk brie style cheese from the state of Maryland. Oh, our home state, Jerry. Yes. Um, and so should I be slicing this thick or thin? How should I slice You this? just slice that like a cake because it's a little okay. round. Okay. And for Brad out there, Brad, I always feel like a thin slice is best because you want the cheese to melt on your tongue a little bit as you taste it. 
whenever I see a cheese cube, for example, I always feel like it's just like a little too, it's like eating a wad of gum. So I like a thinner slice of cheese. A thinner slice of cheese. That's just me personally, though. But if it's a wedge, you know, it's a wedge. Go to town. All right. So what am I pairing this with? Well, I brought you a little bit of an apricot jam, which I think could be so beautiful. Now, this, friends, I think of as a great night cheese. Night cheese. It's made from goat's milk, but it's a Mm -hmm. brie-style cheese, which seems decadent. But goat's milk is the lightest of all milks, so it's easy to digest. Okay. Mm -hmm. So do we smell the cheese oh, first? Oh, smell that cheese. So, what, what do you okay. notice? What am I noticing here? What are you noticing? It smells smooth. Okay. Sort of fresh. Nice. Yeah. Kind of um, like fresh milk? Fresh, fresh milk. milk, yeah. Do you yeah. get any grassiness? Some grassiness for sure. See, How once you start mushrooms? saying like the It is quite suggestive. Things, I can it is quite suggestive. It. I have to be honest with you. This is the tantra of cheese. Are you getting mushroom? <laughs> <laughs> are you getting a little bit of uh, damp cave? This is what people want. They want to hear people... <laughs> They want to hear people eat cheese on the radio. And what's the little casing called? Mm. That's a rind. You got the paste, which is the center, and the rind. Mm. And now, the rind is is I feel like sometimes has flavor notes all its own. This mm-hmm. is delicious, by the way. That's my I'm tasting so note. Mm. Why so apricot good. jam? Like, tell oh me God. the pairing. The, why? I'll Why tell you, just, yeah. you know, goat's milk, it's a little tangy, as in like a little yogurty, mm-hmm. and so it has a tartness, and so it always pairs well with something else that is tart. So how would I know? Like, mm. I go to the cheese store, and I get this. How would I know that this is the cheese to pair with something like that? You know what? I just say, just try start it. rifling through your pantry. Oh, yeah. I'm always like, huh, Slather what would chocolate chips be like with this? Mm. Huh, can mm. this go with it tomorrow? Yeah. This is amazing. But generally, like, stone fruit jams are terrific with cheese. Or berry jams. It's really hard to go wrong with a jam or honey. I have the same question that Tiffany from Philadelphia asks. Can you get good cheese at your local grocery store? Um, or do you have to go to a cheese specialized store? Can I like can I just tweet that question a little bit? Mm-hmm. Of the cheeses that you might find at a typical grocery store, do you have like a favorite or your one that you would consider like kind of acceptable just to, to grab at the store and go? Sure. I mean, like, feta is a great value cheese, a sheep's milk feta. That's something I grab anywhere and everywhere. Mm. I generally think, like, your aged cheeses from the grocery tend to be better sometimes than your soft cheeses. For me personally, I like to go to a cheese shop where the cheese is not necessarily all shrink-wrapped. Yeah. I want to maybe be able to taste it. I want to get a fresh hunk cut from a wheel. Shrink-wrap bag. Well, it's just that cheese begins to suffocate. Begins to suffocate in there. So it starts to get a little bit of a flat note. Email from Marisol says, are raw milk hard cheeses safe to eat? You kind of touched on that. Mm-hmm. Also, aren't soft young cheeses in Pennsylvania required to be pasteurized? I think there's so much confusion about this. You know, you go to Europe, you can eat any cheese that's raw, just mm-hmm. like in this country, you can eat raw oysters. Um, but we have this FDA law that any cheese in the United States must be uh aged at least 60 days mm. in raw milk. So raw milk, hard cheese is always, yes, of course, safe to eat. Um, any cheese under 60 days old, which is like your breeze, your camemberts, mm-hmm. always have to be pasteurized. Oh, we have some on the phone, but I want to mm-hmm. be eating a cheese while we talk with them. Okay. <laughs> Let's eat the second cheese. <laughs> we just introduce you the second cheese? You are holding up. This, this, does she not look gorgeous? This is like a, a creamy, fudgy cheese with a, like an orange shirling jacket is what it looks like. She's got this rumply rind. such a good description. I am so jealous. That's amazing. <laughs> Her name is Rebby Roos. Rebby meaning sheep, red meaning, or roos meaning red. So it's a red sheep's milk cheese from France. This to me is a cheese that's a conversation piece. I like to start with a comfort cheese. That's why we had our yeah. Bristol mm-hmm. cheese. And then I like a little conversation piece. This one's going to shock like, me a What is bit? that? And this, yeah. It is going to be like sinking into a feather bed of sheep's milk custard. Mm-hmm. 
sheep's milk, the richest of the milks, high butter fat. Oh so my this yeah, so buttery. buttery, and it and it mm. almost smells a little sweet to me. Mm-hmm. Sheep's milk can be a little sweet, a little herbaceous. I just think this is a beautiful, beautiful like pleasure craft. Say the name one more time. Brebirus. Brebirus. All right, and that, I feel now, the flavor kind of intensifies okay. as it after it hits your tongue for Wonderful. a while. I don't know. I feel like note. look wow. how your palate is <laughs> developing and stretching. Look at that. All right, I'm gonna step up my game on the next cheese. In the meantime, uh, Stacy has a blue cheese question oh, and it's I on love, the line. I love this. We love blue cheese questions. Me too. Stacy, you're on studio too. Hi there. I you know this is probably a really, really rookie question here, but how can you tell when blue cheese goes bad because it already has mold in it? That's a gr- that, I think that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Stacey. Right. This is why blue cheese always tastes good. Have you noticed that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how can you tell if it goes bad? I would say if a cheese goes bad, it tends to smell really, really strongly of ammonia. It doesn't mean it's bad. Oh, it just ammonia. means it's a bit overripe or okay. maybe it's been in its container too long. Typically, you can leave it out for about 30 minutes. The ammonia smell should evaporate, but it does mean eat it today or tomorrow. Random thing I learned in this book, mm-hmm. cheddar is a verb. We don't have to do the whole backstory, but cheddar is a verb. Use it so in a read sentence. It, read it in the book. Cheese, you can cheddar cheese. You can cheddar. Can cheddar, che- cheddar gets cheddared. Cheddar gets cheddared. Okay, well, well you have to read the book you to read get the, the book. reference. Okay, but I want to bring in a, uh, mm-hmm. a comment from Melanie from Fishtown who wants to know, is there a good vegan cheese? I guess oh, just Mel- one would suffice. Melanie, you tell me. Because <laughs> you don't eat, you like, I want well, the cheese cheese. I've eaten some vegan cheeses for sure. There's like a, a really delicious vegan uh, cheese style product made here in Philly called Barn Cat. I've seen it at Barn uh, Cat, yeah. my local grocery co-op. Um, Bandit Barn Cat? And Bandit, that's yep, it. Yes, okay. thank, and that's like a cave-age vegan cheese. Really interesting. Thank you, and Google. And so let's talk about this final cheese that has a little oh, yeah. sprig here. And I'm yeah. going to try to Is that rosemary? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I always want to bring something local or regional. This is called Wild Rosemary from just outside Pittsburgh. The mm-hmm. company is Goat Rodeo. Very <laughs> love the name. That's a great name. It's kind of a Manchego-style cheese, if you've ever seen a Manchego rolled in rosemary. Mm-hmm. This is kind of an homage to that. It is a cow-goat mix. Yeah, it's a mm-hmm. firm cheese, so it's an aged cheese. Mm-hmm. I just think it's wonderful for the season. I love a cheese that's rolled in leaves or, or you know, um, pressed with fresh herbs like this. This cheese is actually massaged with olive oil yeah, and oh, you can pressed that. with rosemary. Mm-hmm. This is just such a good snacker. Mm. So you would just sit here. Sharp. So how do you oh, eat yeah. your cheese? Like you just sit around like chopping off pieces just like as I would you do. Are. Yeah, just as you are. Usually with, you know, with some, some nuts, some honey, some snacky things. A lot of, mm-hmm. I love like raw vegetables and cheese. I don't eat a ton of bread with cheese because I feel like that fills me up. Mm-hmm. Um, but You're I like, I need some space for the cheese. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Get all that bread. Don't grab it up with bread. You know, this is the cheese <laughs> lifestyle. Welcome to it. That was our conversation with Tanaya Darlington, author of Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese, a truly delicious segment. Coming up next, Avi, scientist Michael Mann's message on climate change might surprise you. And say it now, son. Cheese and crackers and Supporting WHYY, the Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Funded by the Knight Foundation, the Chamber announces its Leading the Way Cell and Gene Therapy in Greater Philadelphia report. More at chmbr.biz backslash cgtphl. Welcome on back to Studio 2. Hello. 
I'm Avi wolfman Errant. Hello, I am Cherry Gregg. As we look back on 2023, we're reminded of a whole lot of climate crisis red flags. The summer was hot with record-breaking temperatures around the world. We saw devastating wildfires in Hawaii, parts of Canada and Greece, massive flooding across Europe and Asia. We could go on and on. Of course, when you start talking about climate change, a lot of people want to cover their ears or throw up their hands and just give up. But that doomism mindset is exactly what climate scientist Michael Mann is fighting against. Mann directs the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. His latest book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. He believes that as bad as it is, it's still not too late to take action to protect our planet. Michael, you write, the conditions that allowed humans to live on this earth are incredibly fragile, and there's a relatively narrow envelope of climate variability within which human civilization remains viable. Can you give us an understanding of what this narrow envelope is and why you argue that this moment is so fragile? Yeah, you know, our entire civilization, uh, our infrastructure that now serves uh, 8 billion plus people on the planet was built during a climate that was remarkably stable. Over the last 6,000 years, uh, global temperatures were relatively flat. There were regional climate changes, but if there were regional challenges, you could move somewhere else. What's different about what's happening today, it's global in scale. Everywhere is impacted. And so what we're doing by burning fossil fuels and uh, warming uh, the planet faster than anything we see in the past we are rapidly leaving that envelope of variability upon which our fragile infrastructure is, is, is based, um, is, is built for. And, and that's the real threat. People sometimes say, well, hey, you know, it was warmer 100 million years ago and carbon dioxide levels were higher. And I get into that in the book. And that's all true. What's, what's different is that we have more than 8 billion people dependent on the stability of the climate during which our entire civilization was built. And we are changing that climate more rapidly than anything we're able to document in the past. It's the speed that's Mm -hmm. different, right, Michael? I mean, that is such a key element. And I'm curious because you do visit all of these uh, geologic eras in the past um, where you talk about when it was really, really hot and when the earth was really cold and covered in ice. Um, But you note over and over again that those conditions came about much more slowly than what we're seeing right now. So how does that complicate your ability to draw lessons from the past, knowing that the timelines were so much different than what we have now. Well, it is a really important caveat. You know, we often, when we look to the past for an analog of what we could call rapid climate change, and mind you, rapid, but what paleoclimatologists (laughs) mean, what geologists mean by rapid is, you know, something that took place over tens of thousands of years. Um, So even the most rapid geological event of warming that we're able to document it. It's called the PETM or the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum. I know it just I rolls like off the tongue. Yeah, by the way. It just <laughs> rolls yeah, off yeah. the tongue, doesn't it? Um, but it happened actually 10 million years after the the dinosaurs perished. Uh, So it happened about 55 million years ago. There was a rapid warming spike. And by rapid, we mean tens of thousands of years. The planet uh, warmed fairly rapidly. And it actually did lead to uh, quite 
widespread extinctions, uh, especially of large mammals. Uh, it turns out if you're large, it's much more difficult for you to cool off. So mm-hmm. it favored basically shrinking. Uh, horses over the course of about 10,000 years got 30% smaller. Um, wow. But those that weren't able to adapt obviously perished. And so what we're doing today is 100 times more rapid. The warming is 100 times more rapid than what we what we point to as the best example of a rapid warming event in the past. And, and that's the caveat, that CO2 we're producing is acidifying the oceans at rates that have, again, no precedent in, in the past, as far back as we can go. That's what makes this such a fragile moment. Yeah. You argue that climate change has been responsible for the rise and fall of civilizations, and we're seeing a crisis at our border. You, you actually make some really um, strong analogies and draw dotted lines. I want you to sort of talk about um, what has happened before and how this sheds light on what we're going through right now. Yeah, I, I talk about the rise of Mesopotamia. It was the first true civilization, the first city-state. It rose about uh, 6,000 years ago um, in response, actually, to the drying of the climate in the, in the Middle East. Uh, that drying required uh, the development of new technology to deal with the drying climate, irrigation. Uh, mm-hmm. You had two rivers, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Mesopotamia me- literally means the land between the two rivers. They were able to develop irrigation techniques to tap into that water, and that allowed them, and that required specialization. Uh, so you need specialized workforce to do those engineering projects. It led to, you know, the first diversified civilization, but it became so sprawling, so overextended, that when it was hit by an extreme drought, about 42 thousand years ago, large parts of that empire were not able uh, to feed themselves. They didn't have adequate water. And you saw conflict arise Mm. between the north and the south. And as you alluded to, the construction of a wall to keep those from the south from moving into the the more um, fertile regions of the north. Um, And if that isn't a lesson for us today, then I don't know what is. It was climate-related stresses that led to conflict, that literally led to, you know, disparities and ethnic conflict, all of those things that we see emerging today, including the construction of a wall. As we know, there was, uh, our former president wanted to construct a wall, essentially to block people from the South who are fleeing environmental degradation. It's history, unfortunately, repeating itself, but now at the global scale. Wow. I want to go back to PETM. (laughs) <laughs> 55 million years ago. Uh, kind of obsessed with PETM. You it's, write, a good, it's a good uh, geological epic it, to get it, obsessed about. It, it's, it's really interesting. And as you point out, it's, it's relatively slow compared to what we're doing now, but relatively fast compared to other major climate changes on this planet. Um, you write that uh, at one point there are probably mangroves and rainforests that reach Arctic latitudes, hippos, alligators, palm trees off the northwestern coast of Greenland, suggesting lush, balmy conditions near the North Pole. Santa's having a good time up there. It was triggered by there, – there was a large release of CO2, and we still don't quite know why? Well, we We do. You know, one of the the reasons that I focused on that period is it's often pointed 
to by the doomers. Yeah. Mm. So mind you, you know, the climate deniers, we know them. They, they, they deny that climate change is even happening. Uh, that, that's absurd. Um, and it's, it's been an obstacle to meaningful climate action. But increasingly, we see something almost at the other end of the spectrum, which is doomism, the idea that it's too late to even do anything about it. And that potentially leads us, ironically, down that same path of disengagement, whether we deny it's a problem or we deny that we can do anything about it. It potentially leads to inaction. And so some of the doomers uh, will point to the PETM and will say it, it's an example of a runaway methane right. You know, warming event like what's happening to us now. It doesn't matter if we stop fossil fuel burning because the methane is being released from the permafrost and we're going to get runaway warming and all life on Earth uh, will be extinct within 10 years. There are some prominent players in that space who literally uh, have uh, made that argument. Um, and it's, it's wrong today. That's not what's happening today. There is a rise in, in uh, methane. And it's mostly, uh, we, we can actually look at the isotopic fingerprint of the methane, the carbon atoms in the methane, and figure out where it's coming from. And it looks to be coming from natural gas extraction, hydraulic fracturing, us. Right, right. Not, mm-hmm. a, not a runaway feedback. It's our activities. Right, our, not the earth revolting, but, but just the stuff that we're pumping in there. Yeah, our yeah. continued, you know, extraction yeah. and burning of fossil fuels. So, and so that's, that's the lesson. So when you, in the end, I'll give away, you know, the punchline <laughs> here. Um, it was carbon dioxide, the same carbon dioxide that we are creating from fossil fuel burning. In that case, um, there were volcanic eruptions in Iceland that were tapping into very carbon-rich uh, reservoirs within the solid earth. And so they were pumping out huge amounts of CO2. But again, we call that rapid. It was Not about 100, 100 yeah. times slower than today. Yeah. Um, you have this optimism based on you know, our, our paleoclimate uh, past. Can you tell me where that optimism comes from and this idea that the earth is very resilient? When we look uh, over the longest time scales, uh, there is some stability. There's stabilizing mechanisms. Uh, the Gaia hypothesis, if you've ever heard about it, the idea that Earth in some ways almost acts like an organism. It has these stabilizing properties that keep the temperature of the planet within habitable bounds. By and large, that's true. Um, there are these stabilizing factors. The problem is if you hit the system too hard and too rapidly, then those stabilizing factors start to give way. And, and, and that's sort of where we are today. We're still within that envelope. If we act dramatically, we can, we, we, we can preserve this fragile moment. But if we continue headlong with fossil fuel burning and continue to elevate those CO2 concentrations, all bets are off. Okay. Um, this thing called the Silurian hypothesis. Okay. This is a, this is a character, a doctor who, from this sort of like ancient race of intelligent lizard people, who existed and then kind of had to go into hiding at some point. And this hypothesis based on this idea, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of a thought experiment to think, what if there was an ancient intelligent civilization that came and went so fast geologically that it's hard to prove whether or not it ever existed? And you write in the book that the hypothesis isn't obviously wrong. Uh, It does demand consideration and close examination, even if it isn't provably true. Um, what was so interesting to you about the Silurian hypothesis, and what does it have to tell us? Yeah, there's so many interesting things. It was hard to like get that story down to where I could fit it in <laughs> a section of the book. There's so much I wanted to talk about. First of all, there's just 
the amazing fact that uh, while Doctor Who in the UK, you know, was featuring these uh, reptile uh, people, these lizard people, we had the same thing here back in the States when I was growing up, Land of the Lost. Yes. Uh, it was the yes. same idea. So what is it about the 1970s? And I, and I have some theories <laughs> that I talk about. <laughs> Why were we so fast in, fascinated with the idea of a prior reptilian civilization that basically destroyed itself? Because that was the theme in both of these. So what's interesting you know, is a, a, a thought experiment that was posed by my friend Gavin Schmidt, a uh, climate scientist who uh, now heads up the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is right above Tom's Diner, the Seinfeld Diner in <laughs> New York City, um, and Adam Frank, who was sort of a SETI guy, you know, the search for extraterrestrial, if you've right. seen the movie Cosmos. Um, and, and so he came out of this community of how would we find life on other planets? What would we look for? And he was talking to Gavin, and Gavin said, well, what, how would we know if there was intelligent life previously on this planet? Why don't right. we ans- answer that question first? And they went down that rabbit hole, and it's sort of fascinating because in the end, with the PETM, you see a lot of things that look a lot, could lead mm, you to yeah. think it was like a fossil fuel-driven yeah. you know, uh, uh, civilization that basically extinguished itself by warming up the planet. And it turns out it requires quite a bit of um, detailed investigation to find evidence of things that do clearly contradict right. that. Because a lot of the stuff you would think would be there you know, the bodies of these uh, reptile people or the, you know, the homes that they constructed, all of that stuff would be, would be wiped clean by plate tectonics. And yeah, but, but it brings up this idea that perhaps it's hard to find, you know, evidence of civilizations because they come and go, they would come and go so fast. And because they are inherently self-destructive yeah. because they get too complex too quickly. Yeah. Do you subscribe to that as all? Do you think something about human civilization might be inherently self-destructive? Well, you know, I ask that question. Uh, This has been asked by scientists for many years. Um, If there's all this intelligent life out there, how come we haven't heard from any of it? And if you do the calculations, you know, the, the numbers are really, really uncertain. But when you come up with an estimate... It does seem like if the universe was teeming with life, we should have mm-hmm. heard from it. And one of the solutions, this is the Fermi paradox, um, after the physicist Enrico Fermi, one solution to that, con- that, that paradox is that intelligent civilizations extinguish themselves so quickly that it's just the blink of an eye on geological time. Mm. And so I want to bring it to today and to what it has been like for you over the past 25 years. How have you seen people's ideas and understanding and acceptance shift and evolve over the past few years? Yeah, thanks for that question, Sherry. It's, it's a really good one. Like, you know, um, can I say that work and other research that was done in the 1990s inspired the actions necessary to avert catastrophic warming? I can't because, mm-hmm. because we haven't uh, acted to the extent that's necessary and it does sort of get into some of these existential questions that we were just talking about. Is it just our nature to not mm-hmm. be able to rise to that sort of challenge? Or is it our nature to fall victim to political systems that create such a gulf between power brokers and elite opinion mm-hmm. that, that there is no respect for fact? Uh, there's no respect for what science says. And right now we're sort of in, in a dangerous place right now where where one can ask that question. We have a comment from Josh online who says, on the societal level, we aren't willing to sacrifice anything, so it will continue to get worse until the pain of staying the same finally outweighs the pain of changing. To me, it's akin 
to a very slow and tedious war crime most of us are complicit in. Also, um, from men, collective action can make huge impacts. We need to remember that in general versus throwing up our hands and saying that we what we do doesn't matter. I want to sort of like deal with a problem that I think a lot of people face. You know that climate change is real, but then drawing the line to yourself and your individual action either causes you to feel like there's nothing I can do or you, you feel very lost. How do you help people communicate to us? How do you help people draw that line and not feel hopeless? It was actually sort of the topic of my last book to blatantly mention my, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the new climate war, which was sort of about the tactics that are being used right now to block meaningful climate action. And doomism, ironically, which we were talking about, leading people to despair is actually one of the ways of, um, of leading them to disengagement. And so mm-hmm. there's some bad actors who have been feeding the flames of uh, doomism. But there's also, there are all these D words that come up, and one of them is deflection as well. There's division, getting climate advocates fighting with each other over, you know, whether they're vegan or not, or whether they fly <laughs> or not. So it's a divide and conquer sort of strategy. And then there is deflection. Mm-hmm. Deflecting attention away from the needed systemic solutions, uh, carbon pricing, um, uh, clean energy standards, all of the policies that we know are necessary to incentivize this collective shift away from fossil fuels. Fossil fuel companies have borrowed from a playbook that was used by past industries, and they've deflected attention away from the need for systemic policies, which will hurt their profits, Mm. shift away towards individual behavior, put it all on us. The most important thing, therefore, that we can do as individuals is to work collectively to put pressure on our policymakers, to elect policymakers who will act on our behalf, and to you know, and to vote out um, those who are just rubber stamps for polluters. One thing that you mentioned in the book, Michael, is this idea that scientists disagree. And in fact, they have to disagree. That's part of the process. But that bad actors will seize on that disagreement to sow dissension and misinformation. So I want to bring in now an email from Bill, who says, is there a climate science toolkit which provides a non-politicized view of the science that we can base our arguments from We really need an easy way to understand that point of view that describes the increase in temperatures from CO2 and methane, mitigating those science deniers. So how do we encourage good scientific disagreement, but Bill's asking for tools to sort of like, I guess, ward off the bad effects sometimes of that? Yeah, first of all, sort of um, uncertainty is not what the critics would like you, the implications of uncertainty are not what the critics would like you to think. They like you to think that, oh, there's uncertainty in some aspects of the science, so we shouldn't act because, and they're willing to give you perfectly certain estimates of all of the cost of taking action when in fact the cost of inaction, and we've seen it here in Philadelphia, the deadly floods, the you know, we had the worst air quality in the world for several days because of that Canadian wildfire smoke. So the cost of inaction is already far greater than the co- the investment, um, the cost of the investment in clean energy. Um, so uncertainty is, you know, works in the opposite direction in the sense that some of the impacts are actually, at this point, worse than what we predicted. The overall warming of the planet is about what we predicted. In fact, here's, um, you know, a, a fact that... Uh, you know, uh, many people find astonishing. ExxonMobil, world's largest publicly traded fossil fuel company, their own scientists in the early 1980s in a report that got buried, mm. 
correctly predicted how much warming we would see at this point in time if we continued with fossil fuel burning on the path that we followed. So even ExxonMobil's own scientists predicted the warming. The warming we've gotten right. Even ExxonMobil's back of the envelope got it right. But some of the impacts, the extreme weather events that we're seeing here in Philadelphia and elsewhere, uh, the beginning of the collapse of the ice shelves and, and, and potentially the ice sheets and the sea level rise that's arising from that, many of these processes were uncertain in the models. And as we see them play out in, in mm. the real world, we're realizing that the models underpredicted mm. the rate and magnitude. In your book, you argue that climate change isn't a cliff that we go off at certain thresholds. Instead, you say, quote, it's a dangerous highway. We're going down. We need to take the earliest ramp possible. Explain your analogy here. What are those exit ramps that you believe we need to take and quickly? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we talk a lot about one and a half degrees Celsius, warm, mm-hmm. three degrees Fahrenheit warming relative to the pre-industrial era as the point where we really start to see far worse consequences. And we're getting really close. We've only got a few tenths of a degree to go. And so, you know, if we are to keep warming below that level, we've got to ramp down carbon emissions globally by 50% this decade and get them down to zero by the middle of the century. That's an uphill task. If we fail to do that, we don't give up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, because one6 is better than 1.7 or 3 degree. We'll do Fahrenheit. 3.2 Fahrenheit is better than 3.4 Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. and 3.4 is better than 3. Every tenth Every matters. tenth, every fraction of a degree matters. Yeah. It mm. prevents uh, damage, death, and destruction. And so it's about limiting the warming as much as we can, and frankly, taking steps uh, to adapt, especially helping frontline communities who are dealing with some of the worst consequences. And we see that here in Philadelphia. This is re- there's a real sort of climate justice issue. Um, ad- helping those communities, helping people, um, adapt and provide them with the resilience necessary to deal with those impacts that are now baked in that we're not going to avoid. A couple minutes left, Michael. Uh, you're a scientist, but you have become, maybe whether you wanted to be or, mm-hmm. or not, a science communicator. Yeah. Much the way like Carl Sagan did, right? I mean, so Carl Sagan was a scientist, but Carl Sagan was also someone who communicated what the scientific community was doing to the broader world. Well, you're too kind to well, include well, my <laughs> name in the same sentence as Carl Sagan, but thank you. <laughs> We're very kind here at the studio, too. Um, but, you know, part of your job, part of your challenge is communicating nuance in a world that seems to want to reject nuance. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned a, a mentor of yours, Stephen Schneider, who says, uh, that the end of the world and good for you are the two lowest probability outcomes. How do you communicate nuance and uncertainty in our current media climate? Yeah, thanks. And Steve Schneider, he was a, a good friend, a mentor, um, a role model for me, um, like Carl Sagan. Uh, he was a great scientist, a great science communicator, and he was full of these aphorisms. You mentioned one of them. Another was, you know, the truth is bad enough. We don't have to exaggerate the science of climate change because the truth is bad enough. And so you're right. We live in this sort of um, clickbait-driven world, you know, uh, page-view-driven world where – which favors sort of extreme rhetoric and polarization. And so it's so difficult to have a nuanced conversation about just about – anything, although you guys do a great job here. We're doing our best. Providing We're that, doing our best. Providing that. Um, but yeah, so it, it's always a struggle to do that, but it is really important here because if you go too far in one direction, you deny that we have a problem. You go too far in the other direction, you, you, you deny we can do anything about it anymore, and the truth is in between. Yeah. And with that, I want to say your optimism is 
I mean, refreshing, and it gives us all a little bit of hope, and we appreciate that. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. And that was our conversation with Michael Mann, director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Coming up next, Avi, the 16-year-old flutist who blew us away with his talent. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY, the Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Funded by the Knight Foundation, the Chamber announces its Leading the Way Cell and Gene Therapy in Greater Philadelphia report. More at chmbr.biz backslash cgtphl. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. This is Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, we get to talk to a lot of talented people on the show, don't we? Yeah, and we don't have any talent ourselves, so it's a great deal. And sometimes... I'm so, I should speak for myself. I'm sorry. That was rude. <laughs> I don't have any talent. <laughs> but look, sometimes the folks who come on and share their talent, they're pretty young. A little too young to be so good at what they do. Julin Chung, remember him? Mm-hmm. A flutist. 16 years old. He's at the Curtis Institute of Music right now training to be a professional. What was I doing at 16? I oh, even, I no, man. Don't even rewind mean, it back. Oh, no. So Julian was <laughs> featured in an episode of TV 12's On Stage at Curtis this year, which is why we got to chat with him about mm-hmm. his big ambitions and what he loves so much about this instrument. We actually learned a ton about the flute. And we had yeah. to start this conversation before we got to all that by asking how it began when he was just six years old. It started with uh, we were in a, like a kid's toy shop. And they had those plastic recorders for sale. And I took one of them home. I remember I couldn't stop playing it in the car while my mom was driving back. Uh, I think I was trying to play Mary Had a Little Lamb or something, something easy. Um, and I was looking up, like, tutorials on YouTube. And I was watching one that had a flute, not a recorder, but I was watching the flute when I was trying to figure out how to put it on the recorder. And my dad was like, you got the wrong instrument. You need a flute for that. Uh, tried it for a bit, was just expecting it to be a little small hobby for a little bit, and then probably drop it but then it just kind of slowly escalated more and more and now yeah now it's what I want to do for the rest of my life what do you love about the flute sound like what Mm -hmm. is it that sort of draws you in when you're standing there playing it's so expressive it's very similar to the human voice a lot of people uh, say that we use the same muscles as the voice even though I'm a terrible singer Uh, it's, (laughs) it's the same kind of it's the same sensibility and it's the same amount of expression and 
It's just it's the range of repertoire we have, the music that we play. It's our place in the orchestra. I love orchestral playing. It's what I want to do. And the way that the flute kind of sits on top of everything. It's a really pristine color in an orchestra. It's and a pristine color. And yeah. Is that the sound you're saying? The sound the is color? a pristine color. Yeah, when, it, when, when the flute is like perfectly floating on top of the orchestra, it's, it's very pristine and adds this beautiful color. Wow. I love that description. Mm-hmm. When did you realize, wait a second, I'm not just good at this, I'm good, good at this? Was there a revelation? Not really. I guess it's always something that's been part of what I do every day. You know, there, there might have been baby steps, uh, but there was never like a big moment where it was like, oh, you know, I want to do this, do this. Uh, it was just kind of something I always did and something I always really, really liked. People have called you a prodigy. How do you feel about that word? And how do uh-huh. you see yourself being so young and I picked it up and become mm-hmm. so good at it so early? I think the word prodigy is kind of, I don't know, I, I feel a little a little alien from it. It's just, you know, it's something I did for a while and it's something I enjoy a lot. And I've just been really lucky to start it early and have a lot of time to learn how to express myself with the instrument. But when we talk about that word prodigy, mm-hmm. you say it feels alien to you. Because I can sense it, it repels you a little bit. A bit. I don't know. I feel like prodigy kind of implies that there's some sort of, and this is this is kind of a, sort of a hot take, I guess. Prodigy uh, <laughs> implies that there's some sort of like special like privilege or talent. I guess music is not really about, you know, being a special talent or, you know, being four years old and playing at Carnegie Hall or something like that. It's just, you know, it's about expressing yourself and telling your audience something. I guess my my follow-up question there is the type of music you play. You want to play in an orchestra and you want to perform. What do you love about classical music? The beautiful thing about classical music that I think isn't represented as well in the mainstream is that you know, if you want to talk about like Western music, it's the tree trunk beneath all of it. And I think people think that what I explore is just that bottom stump mm-hmm. of music. And then I don't touch anything above it. But I think it's more accurate to kind of see it that I take, I of course study that bottom stump. Everyone's heard of Mozart, Beethoven. Um, but actually the majority of my effort is spent exploring those areas where the branch diverges classical music isn't a good way to describe what I'm studying. It's more Mm. instrumental music. Classical music, you can kind of trace every modern genre, pop, even some parts of jazz, like jazz harmony. You can trace it all to classical music. And I think people's conception of classical music, that it's only kind of music written in the 1800s, but that's one period that I spend maybe 20% of my time on, Mm. that there's lots of music, like film scores, stuff like that. We play very similar things Mm. all the time things that are way, way past that. You know, I'm playing a piece a couple of days, actually, that was written, like, six months ago. Hmm. And I play everything from six months ago to, like, 500 years ago. There's pieces that I play that sound like Taylor Swift songs. And then there's pieces that I play that sound like random blips and boops. And there's <laughs> horror movie music. And there's, there's all sorts of diversity, you know, in the 500 years of music that I that I play. Let me um, ask you about the selection you're going to play for us. Mm-hmm. So this is by composer Pierre Octave Farood. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about the trunk and the branches. This mm-hmm. is one of the branches here? Yeah, you could say so. The piece itself is meant to be very free. It's for solo flute. I'm on my own, so there's a lot of liberty that I have. It starts off 
very you know calm and then there's this faster section and you'll hear you'll hear pretty clearly in the faster section there's these modes of notes very commonly used in east asian music and it's put through kind of a french lens those fingers were moving those fingers were moving it's almost like you were doing a bit of a dance as well yeah and and performing with your instrument where do you go like you're you have this this very peaceful look on your face when you're playing what are you feeling where do you go in your mind when you're playing i think there's an energy that music has i know there's a lot of people who put like stories to what they're playing they think of a story they think of like really specific like events to try and create a mood. I can't really do that. I just, you know, like for the beginning, very it's very calm, and then there's a few bursts of energy. And I just try and put my head in that space. It doesn't matter. There's, you know, there's a few pieces that are so heartbreaking. And I guess that's the beauty of it. Even if I'm like in my happiest mood, I go and I start to play. I'll, I'll just, you know, play one of these pieces that's, you know, very heartbreaking. You know, there's stories behind it. And it kind of takes you to a different, takes you to a different place. And just sure ride the current of yeah. the mood of the piece yeah. to wherever it takes you. Mm-hmm. Wow. Before we wrap up, I'm curious, what do you do outside of music? You're 16 years old. Mm-hmm. In it's, a city. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not music 24-7. So what do you do? What are you interested in? I like eating. I like, I go, eating. I like going to restaurants. <laughs> okay, uh, give me some favorites. Food places in Chinatown. There's this really good dessert place, Mango Mango. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, mm-hmm. I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> there's this really good spot actually inside Suburban Station, uh, Ninja Bao. Ninja? Made, okay. Yeah, I'm they, definitely okay. definitely write that one down for okay. me. They Ninja do like Bao. dumplings. Talking about Bao buns. Yeah, and it's like inside the station. It's kind of hard to find. It's a hidden <laughs> gem for sure. We'll definitely have to have him back for a food segment, obviously. I'm in. That was Julian Chung. His episode of On Stage at Curtis is available online at whyy.org and on YouTube for you to watch at any time. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer is our engineer from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>